Well, it's a pleasure to be able to open the Word and speak to you this morning. And as has already been said, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. So please turn in your Bibles to John 7, and today we will look at verses 1 through 13. While you are turning there, um, I just want to review the purpose John had in writing his Gospel. He told us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that there were many other signs that he could have told us about. But these are written so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that by believing we would have life in his name. So again, we'll be looking at John 7, 1 through 13 today, but I want to summarize chapter 6 to help remind us of the context as we enter chapter 7. In chapter 6, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men. The multitude saw the sign and responded by attempting to take Jesus by force and make him king. So Jesus withdrew from the crowd. He sent his disciples over across the Sea of Galilee by boat. They were going to Capernaum. He withdrew by himself. And then later that night, a terrible storm arose, and we find the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, being hindered in their attempt to cross the sea, And Jesus, unhindered, walks across the water, walks right up to the boat, gets in the boat. The storm stops immediately, and immediately the boat is on the other side of the sea. And the crowd looks and looks for Jesus. They know he didn't go across the sea with the disciples. They know no other boats have left, but they can't find him anywhere. And eventually they decide, well, we'll just go to Capernaum and see if Jesus is there. So they get in boats, and they go across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum where they find Jesus. And then the rest of chapter 6 is a long teaching from Jesus. It's what we call the bread of life discourse. And in that teaching, Jesus made some really hard statements as he taught. In fact, to the point that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But we find that the 12 continued with Jesus because they recognize that he has the words of eternal life, and they have believed him and know Jesus to be the Holy One of God. Which brings us now to chapter 7 as we start this morning. The first section we're going to look at in verses 1 through 13 is the setting. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 1 here. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. After this, after all those things that happened in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, all of those things, we find that Jesus remains in Galilee and continues going about. We presume that he is teaching, that he is continuing to perform signs and do these works. Now, I'm going to try to show you a little bit on a map. I don't know if you can read that or not from from where you're sitting. But Galilee is the northern region of Israel. That's where Jesus is ministering at this time. Um, It's where Jesus was from. He was from Nazareth. And it's where he did a lot of his ministry. And that middle blue section, I don't know if you can see that, but that middle blue section right in the middle of Israel is Samaria. All right, and that was Samaria was kind of a it was kind of a buffer separating Galilee and Judea, so that they were separated. And then down in the south is Judea. 
Judea is the religious center of Israel. It's, it's where you have the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. It's where you have the temple. It's where you have the sacrifices and worship. So these are the sections of Israel. And we see here that Jesus is restricting his travels to Galilee. He will not go to Judea. Now, why is Jesus staying away from Judea? Well, it tells us right there in the verse, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And, you know, it was, it was a long time ago. We looked at chapter 5, but we found that in chapter 5. When Jesus had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts of the Jews, he came across this invalid man who had been there for 38 years, paralyzed, and Jesus healed the man on the spot. But the religious leaders got upset with Jesus because he did it on the Sabbath. Go back to chapter 5 and let's look at verse 16 real quick. Look at their response to this healing. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as we go back to chapter 7, we're looking at the setting for today's events. Jesus is restricted to the north. He's restricted to Galilee, has, will not go to Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. Well, if we go to verse 2, we find another important part to the setting. So let's look at verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles as it's also known, was one of the most sacred Jewish holidays. In fact, according to Josephus, this was the most popular of the principal Jewish feasts, and this would bring all of the faithful flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So this is a really big deal in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Booths occurred six months after Passover. So just to give you an idea where we're at time-wise, the events that are happening in our, our, our text today are happening six months after Jesus fed the 5,000. He did that on Passover in chapter 6. And that also means that this is six months before the next Passover where Jesus would give himself as a sacrifice for sins. God gave instructions to Moses for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and we find that recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 23. So let's, let's turn there briefly and just see what it was that this, what this feast was about. Now, I'm only going to read a few of the verses, and so if you want more, you can read more parts of chapter 23. But for today, we're going to look at chapter 23, Leviticus 23, begin reading at verse 39. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. 
You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The feast was to be a reminder that Jesus, or the feast was to be a reminder of God bringing the people out of the land of Egypt and how they dwelt in booths during that period of time as they traveled. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 and 15 gives us even more reasoning behind this celebration. And there we find that it was also to be a time of rejoicing and because of God's provision for them. So in this setting, as we begin in chapter 7, where Jesus has restricted himself to Galilee and would not go to Judea because the Jewish authorities are seeking to kill him, with the biggest Jewish celebration of the year coming up in Jerusalem, what will Jesus do? Will he stay in Galilee? Will he go to the feast? Will he be killed? Before we find out, Jesus' brothers come to him with their opinion. In fact, Jesus' brothers challenge him in verses 3 through 5. So let's look now at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see, because so many people were going to be celebrating this feast, Jesus' brothers offer maybe a friendly suggestion. Jesus, you need to go to Judea. You need to show yourself openly. This, there's going to be a lot of people there. You can show your works there, and everybody will see what you can do. The brothers are challenging him to, to reveal himself openly and not keep being so secretive about who he is. He should be taking this incredible opportunity to show his works to so many people at one time. Now, the question that comes to me, in my mind anyway, who are these disciples in Judea that he needs to show his works to? Does Jesus have disciples in Judea? Well, if you turn back to chapter 2, this is the first Passover recorded in the Gospel of John. And Jesus had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And this is the information that we have about who these disciples might be that his brothers are referring to. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Here in this Passover in chapter 2, many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing. But here we see that seeing the signs does not ensure genuine faith. Jesus knew what was in their hearts and did not entrust himself to them. They were not true disciples. So maybe what uh, Jesus' brothers are thinking here is that they just need a little more convincing. Maybe if Jesus will go to Judea and do some more works, maybe then they'll believe. We don't know exactly what 
his brothers are thinking as they make this challenge. You know, are they, are they trying to encourage him? Are they trying to help him? Are they trying to get him killed? What, what exactly are they trying to do here as they offer this worldly wisdom of theirs? And I think, I think the part to me that, that makes it the hardest to figure out is, is that phrase there in verse 4 where they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Because it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that they're, in their estimation, that Jesus is going to show this to the world. I mean, it's one thing to go to Judea. It's one thing to go and show it to the Jews, the, the religious center. But that they, they would have this grasp of, of this Messiah coming for the world. It's kind of hard to imagine that they would have been thinking that big. And so some of the commentators think that maybe this is hyperbole, that his brothers are actually mocking him. And, and Clink puts it this way. He says, such a grandiose statement was certainly intended to offer an over-the-top mockery of his ministry and self-identity. Yet with irony only detected by the reader of the gospel, the statement intended to be a rebuke founded upon the impossible could not have been more accurate. Jesus had come to show himself to the world, though in a very different manner than what his brothers could have imagined. So while we don't know exactly what his brothers are thinking here, I think there's some irony here in the Gospel of John that his brothers are pushing him to show himself to the world, and that's exactly what Jesus came to do. It's just not the right time for him to show himself to the world. And so even in just the few first few chapters in John, we've already seen references to this. In John chapter 1 verse 29, where John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 3 16 that Pastor Daniel read earlier this morning, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Or in John 4 42, when the Samaritans, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus, they identify Jesus as the Savior of the world. So whatever his brothers intended by it, they actually were right, that he has come for the world. He will eventually show himself to the world, but just not now. And Jesus, as we will see, listens to his father, not to his brothers. We find out some more information about his brothers if we keep reading in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not only did they they misunderstand Jesus' ministry and who he was, but they just straight out did not believe in him. They were like so many of those superficial disciples we saw in chapter 2 or in chapter 6. That when they heard the hard sayings, they turned away from Jesus. Because although they could see the signs, they didn't grasp the significance of what they saw. They did not understand who Jesus really was. And so they would not entrust themselves entirely to him. Well, Jesus responds to his brother's challenge in verses 6 through 9. Let's look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. My time has not yet come. 
You know, there's a, there's a phrase repeated over and over in the Gospel of John about the fact that Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. In fact, we see that later in chapter 6 here, verse 30. So, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So all throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to hear about his hour has not yet come. And that is a very specific hour in the Gospel of John. That's talking about when he would be lifted up on the cross, when he would be exalted and lifted up to draw all men to himself. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in verse 8 here when he says, or in verse 6, I should say, when he says, my time has not yet come. It's not talking to that specific hour. It's just talking generically to time. It's not time for him to go to Jerusalem. It's not time for him to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus is ministering at the direction of his Father who sent him. But on the other hand, his brothers are part of the world. And the world can't hate them because they belong to it. The world hates Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. Pastor Daniel read this morning John chapter 3, where Jesus is described as light coming into the world, and the world prefers the darkness to the light because its works are evil. And Jesus has come to expose those evil works. Even in the prologue, we see this tension between Jesus and the world. Look at John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, this is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the world is opposing Jesus, and Jesus, it's not the right time for him to go. But for the disciples, it makes no difference when they go. They are simply part of the world. The world does not hate them. Now, we're going to find out later in the Gospel of John in chapter 15 that the world also hates those who believe in Jesus, just as it hates Jesus. But Jesus' brothers don't believe in him, so the world doesn't hate them. They can go to the feast anytime undisturbed. We continue with Jesus' response in verse 8. He says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus tells the brothers, you know, they want him to go up to the feast. He tells them, you go up to the feast. I'm not going. Jesus had come to the earth, sent by his father, and he lived his entire life in obedience to the father's will. And he's not going to stop that now to listen to his brother's suggestion. Now, we have to deal with an apparent contradiction here in verse 8, because Jesus says he's not going up to the feast, and the next thing we know in verse 10, Jesus goes up to the feast. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, there's a lot of different answers, actually. Um, one, one possibility is that Jesus didn't say, I'm not going up to the feast. He said, I'm not going up to the feast yet. And so some of your Bibles might include the word yet, or might have a footnote saying that there's manuscript evidence for the word yet. Um, most likely that is not the original reading. I think most likely it, Jesus, that is what he said, that I'm not going up to the feast. So what do we do with this? Well, there are lots of different answers, like I said, but I think we need to start with this 
thought in mind. Okay, Jesus is not lying. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells the truth. So whatever is going on, Jesus is not lying. And rather than go through all of the different possibilities, I'm just going to go with what I think here. Um, I, I think Carson offers a really good um, explanation here. It's simple, and I like simple. That kind of resonates with me most of the time. So Carson says, the context supplies a condition. Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he is planning to stay in Galilee forever, but that because his life is regulated by his heavenly Father's appointments, he is not going to the feast when they say he should. The counsel of the wicked cannot be permitted to set his agenda. His not turns down his brother's request. It does not promise he will not go to the feast when the Father sanctions the trip. So we see here, as Jesus is speaking to his brothers, that he tells them to go up, and he remains in Galilee. Well, the last section that we'll look at today, verses 10 through 13, have to deal with the Feast of Booths, all right? And really, this continues on all the way through the rest of the chapter, but for today, we're just going to finish out with verses 10 through 13 and kind of be introduced to what happens at the beginning of the feast here. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So we see that Jesus goes to the feast privately. Now the assumption in this verse, and this is how I take it, the assumption in this verse is that the Father has in some way signaled to Jesus that it is time for him to go. And so he goes, and he leaves Galilee for the last time before the cross. Jesus will not run ahead of the Father's guidance, nor will he lag behind it. And to quote Carson one more time here, he says, John the Evangelist, far from depicting fickleness, is in fact portraying Jesus' firm resolve to do exactly what the Father gives him to do and at the Father's time. Look back at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus is only doing what the Father is doing. He's not acting on his own. So for Jesus to do this, for him to go up to the feast in verse 10 means that in some way the Father has shown this to him. Well, verse 11, we see a little more of what's happening at this Feast of Booths. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Here I would take this to refer again to the Jewish authorities, the, one who, the ones who want to kill him. We saw that in verse 1 where Jesus had avoided Judea because the Jews there were seeking to kill him? Well, here they are. They're at the feast. They're looking for Jesus. They're ready. And he's on their mind. They're talking about him. Where is he? So this is all building up for some big showdown. 
But the religious leaders aren't the only ones that have Jesus on their mind. We're going to see that the crowd has Jesus on their mind as well. Look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Burge makes an interesting um, observation here that the behavior of the crowd parallels that of Jesus. They will not speak publicly just as Jesus cannot come to Jerusalem publicly. Both Jesus' appearance and the crowd's questionings must be done privately. And you can see in verse 12 that there are two opposite opinions among the crowd concerning Jesus. There are some who say, he is a good man. They've seen his works. He's healed people. He's fed the hungry. He's turned water into wine. He's helped so many people. And so they see all that he's done and they say, he's a good man. But there are those, on the other hand, who say, no, he can't be a good man. He's leading the people astray. He's claiming to be equal to God. He's an imposter. He's just leading the people astray. And I would say that in both cases, the crowd is wrong. Jesus is not deceiving the people. But he is so much more than a good man. Them calling Jesus a good man reminds me of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Because while that could be a true statement, in light of everything that we know about Jesus from the Gospel of John, it is a woefully inadequate description of Jesus. Just in these first six chapters of the Gospel of John, this is the description John has for us of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior of the world, the Holy One of God. He is Lord. So as we conclude today, we are looking at a time in many ways that is, must have been a very difficult time in Jesus' ministry. He has faced a lot of rejection. The religious leaders have rejected him. The disciples in Judea have demonstrated that they're not true disciples. The disciples in Galilee, many of them turned away from him and stopped following him. Even one of his own disciples is a devil, we saw in chapter 6. His own brothers don't believe him. He is a wanted man where the authorities have the desire to kill him. And yet, although things may not look like they are going well at this point in Jesus' ministry, don't forget that all of this is part of God's plan and God's timing. If I can quote Carson one more time here, he says, Jesus necessarily passes through a period of time in which his true identity is wholly or partially hidden from all witnesses. For were it otherwise, his opponents could not have crucified him. His faithful followers could not have been crushed by his death 
and burial. But Jesus is faithfully following the Father's plan in the Father's time. So how do we apply this to our lives? I have four questions I want to ask as we close this morning. Number one, do you make demands on Jesus to prove himself to you? That is not a mark of faith, but unbelief. Question two, when things don't go the way you plan this week, will you trust God's plan and God's timing and faithfully follow Jesus? Question three, do you just see Jesus as a good man, someone to help you when you need it? Or do you believe in Jesus for all that he is? If you recognize Jesus as God, Messiah, King, Savior, and Lord, then you will entrust yourself fully to him. You will live for him, not expect him to live for you. And finally, Are you playing a game with Christianity, pretending to be a Christian, but having no desire for Christ or spiritual things? Whether you're a child this morning or a teenager and an adult, it doesn't matter if you have grown up in church all your life and you might think you know everything there is to know about Jesus. Are you playing a game or have you really committed yourself to Jesus Christ? to be a follower of his. If that's you, I pray that you would turn to him today. Put your faith in him. He has the words of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We're thankful for Jesus' steadfast determination to follow the Father's plan that he always acted in obedience to the Father's will. And really, he did it for us. He did it for us. Father, there are so many examples of unbelief. But Father, I pray for those who are hearing my voice this morning that every single person would turn to Jesus and trust Jesus. We know that that doesn't mean life will be easy. We know that that doesn't mean that life will go the way that we plan or the way that we expect. But Father, would you help us to trust you, to pursue you, to recognize that you are better than anything else in the world because you offer life and all this world has to offer is death. Father, I pray that you would encourage us in our faith today and help us to faithfully follow you this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.